Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Danny Moses, I'm going to give you three names. These are three musicians that made up a band. This is going to be a hard one, so I'm hoping you guess it. Okay, here we go. Nope. Leo Lyons, Chick Churchill, Rick Lee, Alvin Lee, and a gentleman named Joe Gooch. Does that mean anything to you? No, it's not the Chipmunks. Okay. These were some of the founding members of the band 10 years after. And I'm going to explain to you why we're going to Ten talk about- 10 years before I was born, I'm sure. Go ahead. 10 years prior to your birth, maybe-ish, although we're in similar ages. Mm-hmm. It was probably 10 years after I was born, 10 years before you. So people can do that math. By the way, Dan Nathan and Danny Moses, this is the On The Tape Podcast. I'm Guy Adami. I was never in the band 10 years after. Dan Nathan, Danny Moses, and you had a great conversation earlier, didn't you, Dan? We did. Danny and I had a great conversation with Michael Kantrowitz. You guys know him as Cantro. He is the chief investment strategist over there at Piper Sandler. So stick around for that when Danny Guy and I are done. The reason why I brought up the great band 10 years after, Alvin Lee, by the way, as well, you might recall, they sang a song. Their famous song is, I'd love to change the world, but I don't know what to do. So I'll leave it up to you. I would love for the world, Dan Nathan, to be different this time. I would love to be able to say all the indicators we're saying is different. The world has changed. I would love to change the world, but I got to tell you something. I don't know what to do, so I'm going to leave it up to the audience. Maybe they can get back to us, but I'm going to leave it up to both of you guys and maybe Cantra later to explain to me why it's freaking different this time. Thoughts? It's funny. Cantor is going to get to some of this. I love when people, and we've been talking a lot about this, Danny, like the kind of history rhyming, if not repeating, and that expression in the markets every time you hear it's different this time. But it's interesting. He brought up this period in the summer of 2000, right? No one knew that the March 2000 high was the high, okay? But it happened. A lot of similarities, right? We just had this kind of rate hiking cycle that was about to come to an end and the market sold off really 13, 14% to its lows in the summer. And then went it on to this kind of 14, 15% rally almost got us back to those prior highs. 
We know what happened after that, right? The S&P got cut in half, not too dissimilar to what happened in 2007. We were in a rate hiking cycle that was about to come to an end. No one could see anything coming to an end. A lot of folks thought we were just entering another phase of a bull market. So when you think about the S&P being 25% off its lows in October, 15% off the lows in March, and we're getting back towards certain levels that are just an earshot away from the Jan 2022 all-time highs, a lot of folks think we're about to enter into a new phase of the bull market. So again, throughout my career, I like analogs to other periods. I think there's just a lot of similarities to those prior two highs. I'm going to throw a name at you, Guy. You ready? Please. Gutson Borglum. He played right defense for, I think, the California Golden Seals in the early 1970s. He was the sculptor of Mount Rushmore. Okay. Come on. Yeah, okay. So I'm watching... The four central bankers yesterday, when you look at them over in Portugal that are sitting there, right? Uida, Bank of Japan, right? Obviously, Powell, Lagarde, and Bailey, mm-hmm. right? Those four comprise basically everything that matters as far as central banks. And I'm thinking to myself, here, the this is not Mount Rushmore. No, but this, not, okay, not by I'm any not, stretch. I'm declaring it's Mount Rushmore. But I started thinking to myself, at the end of the day, all this shit we talk about, this is really all that has mattered since 2009. It's really all that's mattered has been... Central banks proving liquidity. Here's what's interesting, guy. You remember the movie National Treasure? Sure. That was Nick Cage. Book of Secrets. By the way, hold on a second. Before you even go down this road, who was the actress in that? Help me because- Helen Mirren was in it, by the way. Can I tell you something? Dame Helen Mirren, who I love. Yeah. I love her. Yeah. But the younger actress that played Nick Cage's wife, the ex-wife. Yeah, and they subsequently, yeah. Okay, we'll look that up in the anyway, show notes or yeah. something. So Book of Please. Secrets was about finding these secrets that have to do with Mount Rushmore and the Resolute Desk and all these things that were going sure. on. Do you know what they found behind Mount Rushmore in that movie? Gold, Dan. Gold. They found gold, a thing of gold. Danny. So when they blow up this Mount Rushmore, I'm more than talking about gold here. I'm just thinking Spoiler myself. Spoiler alert, Dan. I haven't seen the second one. No, but when you bring it, what's behind a gold? So when they fail and fall apart, it'll be gold indeed. But no, I was watching that and thinking to myself, is it that simple, stupid in terms of liquidity? And the answer is pretty much yes, where liquidity has come from. And at some point, this will matter. And I want to hearken back to the S&P in the fourth quarter of 2021. We started the show at the beginning of 2021. We've always been constructive. And we've been right more than we've been wrong in terms of the trends picking up in the market and what to watch for and what was happening. Remember, Q421, the S&P started roughly at 4,400. It had this 400-point run. We said at the time, that should just be taken off the Fugazi. map. It didn't, didn't make sense. The Fed was already indicating quantitative tightening was coming on top of the Fed going to be starting their rate hike push. He gave fair warning already that was going to be happening. I find that level interesting without looking on a chart that we ran from 4,400 to 4,800. We're not stalling out here. Believe me, I'm not calling this a stall out. The market still is doing what it's doing. We're here on the 4,400 level. But I look back and think to myself, what were we thinking about as it went there? Why did it end up selling back off again? The end sell, sell back off because we had a sl- things were slowing down. The Fed was obviously on a rate hike path. We saw deterioration starting to occur here and there. Nothing cataclysmic, but here we sit. Fed is now going to be 525 basis points in come three weeks from now or four weeks from now, whatever that might be. And it's now 78, 83% chance we're going to be raising at that point. And I'm sitting here, I'm thinking to myself, at some point, the narrative will shift mm-hmm. to, okay, so I'm just thinking back to these periods and trying to stay sane at the same time. All the matters- How is that part going? Not well at all, actually. Because <laughs> I got to tell you yeah. something. I'm having a lot of difficulties with it. So my point is that I put my brain in the closet. I'm watching like the that. Mount Rushmore of central banks yesterday and thinking to myself, this is what we're relying Our upon. Yes. And the answer is yes. In the end of the day, and I think people, this is where I underappreciate it. I always will. And I'm happy to always be wrong on this. I'm not going to rely on central bankers to continuously always bail us out of problems, but time and time again, I'm watching these four and I'm like, yep, we're going to drive ourselves into a, and then what are they going to do? 
The thought is that I'll buy the dip because they're going to print. So anyway, I'm trying to reconcile all of this, but we can see things are happening. Listen, the data hasn't been bad. You've had some decent data come out in the last few days. I will tell you that jobless claims today was an anomaly because of holiday last week. Mm -hmm. Whatever. It is what it is. There are certain trends in Cantor we'll talk about that are in place. They're not going to change my mind. And just because the S&P is at a certain level, and I got to come back and make up a story about why it's there. The reasons that it's there are not healthy, in my opinion, meaning it's not supported by the underlying breadth of the market yet. And stock picking matters. And listen, we talked about overstock last week, Dan. Again, it's a tiny company. I know it's a billion and a half, two billion company. But here are the opportunities that will always be available. So you can be constructively bearish on overall and be bullish on single names. I just want to make one point here. And again, we're talking, Guy's been doing a show called Fast Money. CNBC's on Fast Money. 100, 100 years. <laughs> no, Danny. Yeah. It's not that long. <laughs> but, oh, by the way, can I tease? Am I allowed to do this? Yeah, you can do It's or your no. podcast. You can do whatever you Danny want. Danny Moses will be appearing as a mm. member of the Fast Money desk. I want to say July 16th. Don't give the exact date because the, the assassins can hang out in that window behind. I've seen oh, them do things it. back Nobody's there. All right, but here, I, I just yeah. want to make this point is that if you go back to the start of 2020, the S&P was 3,600 and it got as low is what, 2,200 or something like that in the throes of the pandemic. And then we had that move all the way to what you're talking about, Danny, 4,800. And then at the lows last year, we got to about 3,500. And here we are again at 4,400. And so I bring up the point about Fast Money, a program that I have also been doing since 2011 here, is that sometimes, and especially the way that we came up in the business, we were traders. We've been staring at machines every tick of everything that we watch every day. Most investors don't do that, mm -hmm. right? So if they're tuning into Fast Money or you're listening to our podcast here or whatever, you enjoy the markets. You enjoy the back and forth, the way you enjoy watching SportsCenter and hearing the TikTok of the PGA tournament over the course of the weekend or whatever. So sometimes we get trapped in these kind of like pungentry like circles and everything like that. Most people are dollar cost averaging. They're putting a little bit into the markets every month, every quarter, that sort of thing. And if you're just doing that, you're doing just fine. That's the game, right? That's how you have consistency over a long period of time investing. And if you're here, we never do victory laps here. We probably put a little too much pressure on ourselves when our day-to-day -day calls are wrong or our week-to-week -week, or we get locked into some of those narratives. But you said something interesting, Danny. From the start of this podcast in January 2021, I think directionally on most things as it relates to the economy, as it relates to sentiment, as it relates to trends in the market, I think we've been pretty good at a lot of that sort of stuff. So if you're getting turned around because we didn't say buy the market at the start of this year, no, because we've gotten a lot of things like crude rates, like listen, you're right. If, if people just started listening three or four months ago, they'd be like, what the, what welcome the to our new listeners. Right. Well, yeah. Welcome to our new listeners on the tape. But if you did, you wouldn't understand kind of the process yeah. that we go through and pointing out things like buy now, pay later when it came on the two years ago, or some of these one-off companies, mm -hmm. right. Which were going to be issues or SoftBank, what that meant, them pulling out of the market. Those are the type of things. So we've just gotten caught, Dan, to your point, caught up in not trying to explain ourselves necessarily, but to explain that what you're seeing right now, this is not normal. And I think the biggest struggle for me from the behavioral finance aspect is what is it going to be? Or I do everything I can to try to fit the narrative for where the market is. And I really have a hard time getting there. It always goes lower than you think it's going to go to mm -hmm. the downside and it goes higher than you think it will to the upside. But as we sit here today, I think what we can do that's constructive is what should people be looking for and what is the catalyst going to be that will say, hey, it's irrefutable that we're slowing down. And at some point, we're going to catch up on the earnings front and earnings aren't going to be great in the back half of the year. And Cantrell does a great job of talking about that later, what he's watching. And these are just facts and statistics, right? This is not the behavioral finance aspect. But listen, it's frustrating because we want to 
help people and entertain people at the same time. And yeah, we don't want to be quote wrong, but we're not going to change our logic behind how we think about things because of what the market is doing. A few things. So I th think for a lot of people, they have a number in the S&P, let's just call it for now 4,400 where we are, and they solve to get to that number. In other words, the numbers here, which means by definition, these things have to be happening. Instead of looking what's happening, saying this doesn't add up and 4,400 makes zero sense. So you're solving for the outcome you already have. And I'm not trying to be too wonky here, but there's some of that going on as well. Number one. Number two, Diane Kruger. Oh, that's Diane it. Diane yes. Kruger. By the way, now you went back on it. Do you know how many years it took to build Mount Rushmore? 17. 14. About the same time as QE went on. But again, I can do it. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, yeah. Number two. Yeah. So back to Diane Kruger <laughs> yeah. for a second. She played Helen in the movie Troy. Okay. She is a beautiful woman. She might as well have been Helen of Troy because she could have, what is it? The one that launched a thousand ships? This is what ships. we talk about now and we can't. You brought up the movie. Okay. I couldn't think of Fair the actress. Enough. So right. I wanted to come back to that. Perfect. All right. Now let's talk about this as well in terms of what can change my opinion of what's going on. I don't think there's a whole hell of a lot because the die has already been cast. Like everything has been put into place. The only thing that really hasn't played out is the market behavior, participation of the market to the downside. I will continue to submit. It's a foregone conclusion that something's got to break here. All the things that I look at, all the indicators, and I'm not dogmatic. I look at a lot of different things. They are flashing red look at across the yen, a spectrum of right. different things. Yeah, you mentioned currencies, dollar, yen, flashing red, inverted yield curve, flashing red, currency crises in country we don't talk about, flashing red. It's all out there. Forget about valuations. Now, Apple, and I'm going on a bit of a diatribe here, Apple's on autopilot. It's a $190 stock. It's within a whisper of a $3 trillion market cap. Good for Apple. Great company. Everybody loves it. I totally get it. Apple, and I did the homework on this, Dan Nathan, I believe is the top 15 holding, 1.5, of 354 different ETFs, which means by definition, as passive money comes in, that money is going to find its way into Apple. So for a lot of people out there that say, I don't even own Apple. Yes, you do. Yeah. And good for you, by the way. But the same thing that works on the upside works on the downside. Yeah, and I just want to reiterate one point. So we had Josh Brown and Michael Batnick. TRB. Yes, this was the, the last reform broker. week of Q1, okay? And we were still trying to make sense of what just happened in the regional banking sector. And I think that we can all agree that there was a level of bearishness and it just made sense to actually not kind of Shoot first, ask questions later in the throes of that, at least from some of us who have the PTSD from the financial crisis and the like here. But one of the things that I remember saying at the time is I actually was not constructive on stocks. I was not looking to buy them until we had more clarity about that. But I said the best trade that you could probably do over the next quarter, you remember this guy? I said every day on the close, buy a little bit of the same amount of the QQ, mm -hmm. the NASDAQ 100, okay? That's the ETF because we were talking about the defensive nature because there was money that already started moving into that, okay? And it could have been the AI hype. It could have been a whole host of other things. But if you look at the range in which the NASDAQ 100, the Q, has traded over the last quarter, from 310 at its lows in April to its highs just a few weeks ago, I think at 373. So a 20% range and the average price I think this is the closing price. It's 335 versus a price right now of 363. Working out. That's how people, for the most part, should be investing. Now, if a portion of your investable capital is 
interesting to you to follow guys like us or follow people that are, who have other podcasts or other shows or this or whatever, and you like one-off trades or you like trading crypto or you like trading currencies or you like trading commodities, whatever the hell it might be, then you should express those views in that manner. Everyone's got their hobbies. And I know a lot of people have hobbies in the markets, but for the most part, you should be employing strategies where you are just slow and steady and wins the race. I agree with all that. I'm going to go a bit off the rails here uh -huh. and no pun intended with my following comment. If I were to ever be fiscally sound enough where I could have a hobby that I could immerse myself in, does anybody want to take a guess as what that would hobby would be? Anybody here? No? Danny? Dan? No? Music critic. Oil painting. Oh, actually, you know what? DJ on the Sirius XM of their new Led Zeppelin channel that's going to be launched probably towards the end of this year like with that. Guy Adami well, actually, that's helming not, the that's mic. Not a bad does that idea. make sense? It does make a lot of sense. I would be building model railroads. And what? my fascination with model railroads started back in, if you recall, the Adams family. Gomez Adams had his model railroad set in his like den or something. And I was fascinated by that. So I will be in my basement building out an engage model railroad set in terms of hobbies. On that, you Thank talked you. about DJing. Let's talk about the stress test for a second. Oh, okay. See, now it's, how you did I what do? just happened? You yeah. see like the switch yeah. went yeah, off of me? Because now I was in, as I said, as Damone says, off I was the rails. I've been such a good host. Are you wearing the Damone shirt that I got you? Yeah. I don't know if it fits. It might be a little small. Damone from Fast Times Original and High? He's an extra large. Yeah, I'm a big person. I gotta, but anyway, I have not worn it yet. I will. But yes, please. I woke up in a good mood. I'm still in a good mood, but go ahead with the bank stress test. We expected all the big banks to be able to pass the stress test and a couple things on it. Solomon, however long he lasts at Goldman, cannot get away from this Marcus Green Sky quick enough. The fact that Goldman Sachs came out worse on a consumer loan stress test. I mean, Goldman was nowhere near this sector three years ago. <laughs> and they're the ones, they're performing on the stress load, would, would perform the worst. They can't get rid of this yeah. soon enough. But here's what's interesting. All the stress tests, everyone's fine. Cap one, obviously, wouldn't anyone with a lot of consumer exposure obviously would get hit on those type of unemployment and those losses. How about you use that in the dot plot and you run those unemployment? Oh. Can you imagine if we even got near any of the levels that they're stressing for where the markets would be? The rates would be at zero. The Fed will have cut to zero, trust me. And we our balance sheet would be 12 trillion. Where's inflation? So my point is that like it's a dumb exercise in the sense of if the banks ever have to experience anything that they're stressing for, it'll be alleviated. It'll be some program. Oh, we're going to buy credit card debt for you. I just find the whole thing ridiculous. The banks are utilities. You can own them to a degree and they want to increase their buybacks and pay a higher dividend. Great. Bank America obviously came out that they're sitting on a massive $100 billion mark-to-market -market loss potentially on their treasury book, but who cares? That's for different yeah, days. Well, wait, but, but didn't we talk about that back yeah, in March? You said, like, why how, is it underperforming? How, yeah, so the underperformance was huge, but how can these large money center banks that have the same, I guess, competition for deposits the way the regionals did, they must have these things. A lot of people were poo-pooing it and they're saying as a percentage, right, of their basically asset versus liability is not going to make a big deal, but this could be a huge deal. Well, the deal. thing you think about this, they are in the process. Yellen's mentioned it. I think Barr's mentioned it. They know there's going to be other deals that are going to be needed. Yeah. So they need the big banks to be in a good position so yeah. they can swallow these other banks. I'm not saying there's anything that's imminent, but there's a reason they ran specifically headline on commercial property exposure, right? They were segregating out. Again, they always did those kind of areas. And this wasn't for the smaller regional banks. Obviously, the stress test wasn't for them. But now they're going to raise the requirements. So we're going to see what the capital requirements are going to be as far as risk weightings and so forth, which are going to go up. The point is that it's just really a show. And I didn't expect anyone to, quote, obviously fail this. But I find it ironic that Goldman, obviously, on the consumer 
finance side, which they paid $2.24 billion. That was Solomon's deal for Green Sky alone. They can't even get a three or $400 million. They're going to write it down thing. to zero. Exactly. So. And to your point about David Solomon, he was always viewed as an outsider at Goldman Sachs, came from Bear Stearns. So he had a bullseye on his back from day one. There were a lot of people, obviously, in the firm that wanted Harvey Schwartz to get that job. He did not. Harvey's now running the Carlisle Group. The typical lifespan of a CEO at Goldman Sachs since the 1950s is about six years-ish. If you go back and do the math, he's right up against it. This spring of 2024, probably about that. There's definitely a timeline in terms of how long he's going to be there. I think Montag or somebody, I don't know exactly. Tom Montag is the next guy. Very interesting, though, because we've been tracking all these articles in the journal. It seems like somebody is leaking this stuff to the journal. 100%. But he's a Solomon ally, right? Yes. So he is a Solomon ally. So he was running basically a lot of the operations. He was in the number two to Moynihan. He came to Merrill, I think in late 08 or so, and he had a huge run. So they remember they brought a bunch of Goldman mm-hmm. folks in there, that sort of thing. So that was actually a really interesting move. And I wonder if that was to get that camp off his back a little bit. Here's a guy that you guys know well. That article in the journal a couple of weeks ago where Lloyd Blankfein was holding court at that kind of Goldman yep. confab or whatever and openly critical of him was I'm, really interesting. Because historically, it's like past presidents and current presidents, they'll never speak poorly yeah. about the current guy or gal that goes outside I the norm. like David Solomon. I get it if you're one of these old Oh, you've been to guys. one of his parties, obviously. No, I haven't. But, oh, I actually have seen him be DJ. <laughs> yeah. That was at the Super yeah. Bowl, at, you know, at a party in February of 2022. No, I, what I like about him is he's just cut from a different cloth mm-hmm. of a lot of these bank CEOs and ultimately kind of feel like Jamie Dimon and the rest of the guys who run these money centers, they all look similar for the most part. I think all of them are grooming women to take over, if you think about it. Obviously, City has a CEO that's a woman. Goldman has always been a different animal when it comes to the banks. And so I don't think you want somebody who looks like a money center bank CEO running that bank. Do you? Are these podcasts recorded? Yeah. You can archive them. hundred percent. And like in two years, you can come back and say on June 30th, Guy Adami said the following thing. So like two, three years, even if I'm not around anymore, we you can go you, back. You'll be around. What do you got? The first woman CEO of Goldman Sachs. I'm going to say her name and just want you, again, archive it. Erica Leslie. Remember that name. Now it doesn't mean anything two to anybody. Names. Exactly. Two first names. And I say that because I used to work with her at JR, and I won't get into the nitty gritty detail, but I used to call her Leslie Erica because of exactly that. Two first names. Funny story, though. She sort of ran accounting and she kept track of all our trading P&L. And one day after the close, she came up to the desk and I had a particularly shitty day. And she Because said, you added things wrong or because... Funny you should say that. Yeah. And she said how did this happen? And I explained to her the trade and she said in front of everybody, well, it looks like you traded backwards and people still laugh about that to this day. That's my Erica Leslie story. In terms of the bank stress test, Danny, which you brought up, I didn't because I was going to avoid it, but I'll say this. What was that bank with with the Silicon, Silicon, yeah, Silicon what was the name? Valley, Silicon Valley yeah. Bank. When did they go under? March. March, right? That was the 16th, one sixth largest bank in the United States-ish, right? Mm-hmm. Pretty large bank. If they had been under the auspices, would have passed. Word, pardon me? Would have passed. They would have passed the bank stress test. Correct. So I ask you, Danny Moses, what fucking good is a bank stress test if the 16th largest bank in the country would have passed? Not That's very good. Not very good. Right. Not very. You could so, take that to the bank. Well, isn't it better yeah. than not no, having no, some sort of stress no, test? No. It have the had stress test for the right things. There was no duration risk. There was no yield curve risk in this whole thing. 
they totally missed the boat. They were testing against things that the banks already figured out. You got to be looking ahead. What can go wrong? There are a bunch of wankers, bank stress tests. These are people that couldn't get a freaking job at a bank. So instead, they're the guys and gals that make up the bank right, well, stress tests. Before the big short gets in here, I just want to make a just point saying. is that like all of this, there was railing against all these stress tests and all the regulation that came in after the financial crisis. And you think about what happened during the pandemic, those are the things that you were stress testing systemically important sort of institutions. They held up pretty well, okay? And so just because it didn't cover some of the regionals, and just let's remember in 2018 and 19, yeah, I know. over heavy lobbying. And so my point is like, a lot of this regulation that came after the financial crisis, it's done its job in a way, but it's also turned these banks into what looks like utilities. Like they're never going to trade at the valuations that they did pre-crisis because of this regulation. So for the most part, a lot of the stuff's working out, Danny. It's a token, like I said, they do it because they've done it since the financial crisis. They have to do it. I could argue that the bank multiples have suffered as a result of capital ratios, which I think is a good thing that they're required to hold more. But let's just move off of that and look at the banks in general. There's layoffs occurring within Goldman. Obviously, they're downgrading their MDs or mm -hmm. whatever they do there guy. And we're seeing- Calling the herd. Calling the herd. And we are obviously seeing a slowdown in deal making across the board. That's not new. There are some green shoots that are coming out here. And the one thing that Goldman didn't do was diversify like Morgan Stanley did. And that always is who they benchmark themselves against. They don't have kind of that retail brokerage presence that Morgan Stanley has been able to build and create more consistent revenue streams that have occurred. They went to the consumer finance area, which was a mistake. But beyond that, I want to move into a different area if I could Please. here, because I'm not going to talk about NVIDIA right away, but I find it interesting that Micron which reported obviously a loss as expected, not as bad of a loss. And then such things are, so Micron is more of a memory chip provider as everybody knows, symbol MU, 70 billion market cap, I believe, Dan, if to round that area or something like that. And they obviously have a big issue because China is on them on their cybersecurity stuff. So it's been a big overhang and they don't make money. But what's funny to me is I read through the call transcript and everything that went on. They don't mention a AI enough, Dan. They don't mention, they sell chips or more memory chips, yep. chips that are indirectly used in some for some AI reason. And you think about all the hoopla and why is that? Why is it that this stock doesn't move? Is it there's a China risk on it? Is it that they're not announcing new orders related to it? Is it because they're not profitable? So you can't dream the dream in terms of what valuation you want to put out, Dan? I, I put well, that question to you so because- memory yeah. though for 20 years has been the ultimate commoditized yeah. kind of area within the space. And when you think about it, it's highly cyclical and they had the huge benefit. One of the reasons why earnings are down this year is that all the double and triple ordering that went on in 2020 and 2021. So you're seeing this big pullback in that. And there's a glut, I think, on the market. And again, how can they speak to AI? Well, they can talk about the increased build out of data centers, but that's going to be a 2024, 2025 thing. And right now they're just suffering from, I think, the hangover from what's gone on over the last few years. So they don't got the story here. And I think China is overhang. So Guy, to your point about Apple and just which phone manufacturer in general, Micron mentioned that business. No, so smartphones are down, PCs are down. Okay, so when you look at Micron's biggest customers, it's LG, it's Dell, it's Lenovo, it's HP, it's Arrow, it's some of the contract manufacturers, Xiaomi in China, smaller percents, Apple's about a 6% customer. So they're exposed in, a, in an area that there's not a lot of pricing this power. This is a commodity. Right? Yeah, it's yeah. a massive commodity. So anyway, I just wanted to mention it because you, normally on any news, and they didn't really stress it enough. Again, yeah. not my area. But let me say this, yeah. since you also, Dan, brought it up, and then you brought it up. I'm quoting now from the CEO. The recent Cyberspace Administration of China, CAC, decision is a significant headwind that is impacting our outlook and slowing our recovery. That's from the CEO of Micron. Why do I bring it up? 
because obviously what we also saw this week, Dan, was rhetoric from here, the United States, to again, China in terms of chips. The Biden administration, again, flexing. I'm not commenting whether or not it's the right thing to do. I mean, that's not what I'm here for. What I'll tell you, though, is there will be reciprocity at some point. And the fact that these tech stocks just continue to go on their merry way, not pricing in any pain whatsoever if China were to sort of retaliate, is shocking to me. Go back three months ago, and NVIDIA talked about the potential headwinds in this U.S.-China vis-a-vis China-Taiwan situation and the problems that would be created for them. And again, NVIDIA sold off a bit on this. I get it but not nearly to the extent that I think the market should be pricing it in. That's interesting. And Carter Braxton Worth made this point on Worth Charting earlier in the week. He talked about like the semiconductor index is not making new highs relative to the S&P 500. When you look at the SMH, the ETF that tracks the semiconductor index, NVIDIA makes up nearly 19% of the weight now. Taiwan Semi makes up 11.5%. So you can do the math there. A third of the SMH are two stocks that are very exposed to China right now. They're very much in the narrative about demand for these high-end chips that go into basically these supercomputers that are enabling the compute for these large language models and generative AI that go into data centers, right? So if you think of the Microsoft Azure or you think about the Google Cloud or Amazon's AWS, that they are rushing to basically layer on these sorts of services to grow their cloud share because all sorts of companies that are not going to be buying NVIDIA's H100 chip because they're $20,000 that go into a supercomputer that costs hundreds of thousands of dollars and the compute is much more expensive. So, the, so this is what's happened here. There's been this massive rush to get access to these chips. I think the point about China is that a lot of the manufacturing used to obviously happen for these chips, but a lot of demand for Chinese companies. And we've mentioned this stat that NVIDIA has already seen a billion dollars worth of orders from ByteDance alone, which is the owner of TikTok, okay? That billion dollars this year is more than all of the Chinese demand that NVIDIA saw for last year. So if you're telling me the stock that went from 300 to 400 on that guidance that they gave late last month in May, I'm telling you that could be triple ordering and you might see a deceleration in this sort of demand. And that is what I guess I'd turn this back to what Micron saw over the last three years. What goes up, people can come down. And just the gravity in markets, I think when you're in the middle of a moment here, you can't see the potential for deceleration. But here's a stock that trades very expensive to its peers very expensive to its market and is the poster child for all the excitement in this thing. Again, I just don't find these things particularly interesting. And the fact that the semis are not making new relative highs, the S&P tells me they're stalling and a lot of this enthusiasm is in tune. You know who you will not hear any of these comments out of China from? So China just banned this guy with 4.7 million followers on Twitter. He's He writes in China, he writes about finance, mm-hmm. economic, because he was writing negative. They took him off Twitter. So his name is Wu, but you won't see anything relating to a slowdown in orders. Wait, are you anymore. saying that Elon Musk, the owner of Twitter, is doing the bidding for China? It's because, possibly, because but he's China on Weibo. Really important for him. Exactly. So he writes on Weibo, I guess it's pronounced, yeah. and he was commenting on the stock market and unemployment rate, and they basically took him off. I don't know if if he's been seen since, but just, Wait, you know. Wait, is he off of Twitter here in, the, in, in like, outside of China? Because Twitter's obviously not Oh, that's a good question. So he has 4.7 million followers on Twitter. Okay. I don't but know. But he's if off he's Weibo, a, which Weibo is basically sorry, correct. on the firewall on the Chinese side. He, he's the written books on Tencent. Like, this guy, yeah, you know, he's yeah. a very well-known guy. Anyway, yeah. he's not, which tells me no good news is coming out of China. So In the late 1960s, early 1970s, I joined the Cub Scouts, and then you graduate from the Cub Scouts Weibo's. to- 
Weeblos. Yeah. Which just maybe I thought you go Eagle Weeblos. Scouts. No, okay. That's way That's beyond. The last thing. But okay. Not that again that either one of you care, and this might actually get edited out, which I'm fine with. But the audience might be interested to know that I was actually kicked out of Weeblos because I was running a dice game. No it. joke. You were not Bronx Tale dice game. Yeah. Because I was so bored by what the the hell the the scout master was doing. Mrs. Hoffman, by the way, I remember it was like it was yesterday. And they had to call my parents and say, guy's no longer welcome in the Weeblos, which is different than Weebo, but I completely digress. You know what else has been interesting? And watch this segue. I can't wait. No, just watch this. We've gone from toy trains to keep going. Let's go. That's the train of thought. You like what I did there? Yeah. Inflation's a problem, right? We have, I think really? we all agree. No, but I'm just going. Yeah. So I think I want to say wages represent like 20%-ish of CPI. What do you think a bigger input for CPI is, Danny? I'm just curious. Be housing, shelter. I was going to say rent. Yeah, rent. Yeah. I never saw that musical, by the way. Yeah. I probably should have. I you don't know should. if it's still here no. or not. Maybe it's like in London or yeah. something. I haven't been in London in a while. Manhattan rents just reached a new record high at $4,360 and accelerating rent inflation is a problem because for the Fed, because housing has a weight of 40% in the CPI basket. Look at the housing stocks, Dan Nathan. Put the recently. lotion in the basket. Put yeah. the lotion in the basket. Yeah. So for all you folks thinking that this inflation is magically going to get to the levels that we needed to get at, there are a lot of things still going. And now that we're past like the seasonality, the year-over-year bullshit that everybody talks about, last June, I think, being the high print in CPI, now the comps get a little bit different. So this whole CPI thing, which everybody thinks in the rearview mirror, I don't think it is. And that's why I think your four horsemen, your Yosemite yeah, Sam guys, of, Mount yeah. Rushmore yeah. guys, that's why I think they're so worried because they know what I'm trying to point out. They hear what I'm saying. I will tell you, Dan Nathan, I'm willing to bet that JP, Jerome Powell, is a listener of the On The Tape podcast. Back to you. I would say it's very unlikely that he is. Why is it unlikely? By the way, you've now sent me podcast. down... Silence of the talking about the lambs, Clarice. <laughs> this is where I think it's important. You, no, no. But this is where I differ Uh-oh. with you guys. I actually think so. You started out by saying that yeah. wage inflation, and then you said that what's the biggest one is housing, shelter, I think, shelter. I think they're canceling themselves out here. Okay, and I feel like if you think of all those other inflationary inputs that we were worried about, whether they be crude oil, or they be food, or the things that were impacting home builders, lumber and copper and all the like, they've all come down. I, I really wage inflation is not. General Mills okay, said as but much. wage right. inflation yeah. is an issue for corporate margins. No, I got it's it. actually it's really all that really matters for households, and it basically offsets some of the other inflationary pressures that we might feel if deglobalization and reshoring. But all of those things will basically make the case of why inf- infl- wages will stay bid. I guess the only point that I would make is that it's also the reason why every time the Fed has the opportunity to suggest that rates are going to stay higher for longer, because if you think of what real rates are going to be relative to, let's say, inflation never gets back to 2%, but maybe the new 2% is 3%, right? And so if you think about where interest rates went post-financial crisis, right, we had negative rates for a while. Now, if you look at real rates, they're like 1% or something like that with a CPI that's 4 and a Fed funds that's 5 and so maybe we just reset at a higher level for where- I don't disagree. Places. I think Guy's point is that there's obviously they're going to go again in July and do they take another break or whatever they do and we're going to go into Jackson Hole. I think the point is that, is it coming down to the extent we think it is? Are we going to get relief from that at some point? I don't think you can rely on Fed cutting rates. It's now been pushed out. It is far out the curve. you got to stretch the curve out to see where it's going to go. So I think that's 
the point I think you're making, but at the same time, if the expectations, the thing the Fed cares most about are people's inflation expectations, what do they expect to get paid? What do they think inflation is going to go? That's like a big thing the Fed watches. So if these things creep up and people find themselves still paying more, the expectations have become self-fulfilling. But yeah, listen, we'll see. He indicated two more hikes, obviously, coming I mean, from- Emphatically. Uh, yeah. And he said they're not ruling out two consecutive hikes, too. And you just mentioned Jackson Hole. And Guy, you and I were talking about this a little bit earlier with Liz. On market call, it really feels like, obviously, the CME Fed fund tracker is suggesting a very high probability of a 25 basis point hike. The upper end of that band is going to be 5.5% of Fed funds. Jackson Hole, he gets out there. The air is really clear out there and clean and everything like that. <laughs> and maybe they say, Sep, we're going to go 25, and then you're going to get your pause. Then yeah. you guys are going to get your pause. And that could be a real moment, I think, for market participants one way or another. And then you have to settle in on what does an economy with 5.5% Fed funds rate look like with inflation that is going to, listen, it's going to continue to go down despite the fact that we see these comparisons year over year going to get better. But listen, dude, crude oil can't get out of its own By the way, way listen, let me like, just say this. like, We're dancing up here against two-year hitting close to 5% again. Yeah. I realize there's some window dressing going on as we sit here. We talked about first week in June we were on here. Buying begets buying. Like People can't be on the sidelines. And now you got to underweight. you got to sell some bonds and own some equities here as you go into window dressing yeah. the quarter end. But here's something that's interesting if I could shift gears for a second. Please. Fidelity just announced that they're going to start converting more of the mutual funds to ETFs. Now, these are actively managed ETFs. They'll take a... They, they give examples or six funds are going to convert. It's $13 billion. It's not, it's not a huge amount relative to, to their entire portfolio. And I think now, I think after they do this and so forth, I think the conversion trend is approaching $100 billion total across the board. Here's what's interesting about that. The one thing, forget about fees. They're saying it's better for tax purposes. It's lower fees, this and the other. The transparency part of it, which has now become a positive versus anything where you have an edge, right? So you're seeing daily kind of ownership of names. It used to be you get them quarterly, right? Or you still get them quarterly if you file these quarterly statements, right? It's a big deal when you see big, I find it interesting how full transparency, you kind of lose your edge. So they're doing it obviously for many reasons, doing it because a lot of these active managed funds are underperforming some of the indices and maybe get, I just find it interesting. And I'm not, I'm not saying it's good or bad. I just think it's a trend to watch for these guys to come on. And I believe there's a patent expiration coming for Vanguard in some capacity on some ETF mechanism that's going to allow this to occur even more so. Don't at me if I'm wrong, but there mm -hmm. is something with that. I just find that interesting because the secret sauce of being a fund manager, being able to build a position, now you're going to see potentially flurry into a name, I would think. If, if you're a fund manager and it's not a mutual fund, it's an ETF, you're going to know the next day, mm -hmm. right? But I'm buying. What if I'm starting to sell my NVIDIA? I hate to bring that name up, Dan. I don't trigger you. But what if I'm starting to sell what I'm, you know, Go, and I'm known to be a holder. That's a really interesting dynamic mm -hmm. to me and something that I think will affect, again, doesn't matter. So you're, you're not going to make money off of it. Relative to like 13 Fs that are 45 days for large holders, like all that. Well, just in general, the no, secret know, sauce yeah. of why you pay these extra fees to fund mutual fund managers is they take the time. They don't have to worry about knowing what everyone's yeah. doing in the exact moment. And this is full transparency. Now, it's a small amount. They're testing it out in certain areas. And I'm sure they're testing it out in certain funds, maybe that I'm not saying they're not doing well or haven't been able to grow, whatever it might be, whatever reason. I just find it interesting to trend to something to watch. And so from a trading perspective, I'd imagine it'll become more active from a volume perspective. It could be wrong, but I don't know, it loses a little bit of the secret sauce. It's interesting. First of all, when you've said secret sauce, it makes me, of course, think of a Big Mac, which I haven't had in quite some time because the secret sauce actually skeeved <laughs> me out just a tad wee bit, number one. Number two, when did you start, say we started this podcast? The January of 2021. January of 2021. Yeah. This is June of 23. So it's, is that two and a half years? Yeah. I would say 
over that period of time. So I think it's long enough to be able to say historically, when Danny Moses says things like this, that you should be watching out for this, he's proven to be prescient in those calls. And that's happened a number of different times. When you bring these things up that you've been looking at a month, a couple months later, it's something that mainstream media seems to gravitate towards like a moth to a flame. <laughs> that's it. All right. We covered a lot of ground here. Uh, As do you want to say, I got one other thing to uh, shout out for the show. Why you? Oi, I can't. It's your show. The Adler Group in Germany, which got raided today, okay? The I, Adlers? The, yeah, the Adlers. You know them from when you were a kid. Yeah, the next door neighbors, Adlers. It was a German company, a landlord. It was a four or $5 billion company to speak. A short seller came in and wrote a report in October 2021 saying, mismarking their assets, whatever. I bring this up because the stock was 20 bucks at the time. Euro went to 10 euro. It's now at 50 cents. It's gone. My point is that when someone has these short reports, mm -hmm. whether it's a Hindenburg or whatever, just please, it's worth reading. And now it turns out there's a certain character, Kane or whatever his name is, that was involved in the financial crisis, that was involved at the time, that somehow reincarnated himself to be associated with this. And my point is that people find their way into these companies, but people don't necessarily change. So culturally, these companies, just in general, but anytime I get an opportunity to bring out what short sellers, good they can do, and maybe if that helps save people, I wanted to give it out, Dan. I appreciate that. Necessary. By the way, you mentioned Kane. Before we get out of here, Dan Nathan, Adam raised a cane. Is that in your top fifteen of Bruce songs? No, but it's a great song. It's uh, very dismissive there. No, it's a good I mean, song. It's a great song. All right, so listen. A couple of little housekeeping Please. notes. Stick around for our conversation with Michael Kantrowitz Cantro. of Piper Sandler, and uh, also we have a special drop on Monday that would be July third. And uh -huh. shout out to Liz Young. That's going to be her birthday. People, maybe hit her up on whatever social media network you use these days and wish her a happy birthday. She is a friend of the pod and a normal participant on our Monday edition of On the Tape. But we're going to do something different on Monday's drop because it's a holiday shortened day. I sit down with Zach Rotano. He is the CEO and founder of Roe. And Roe is a new brand sponsor of On the Tape podcast, a co-presenting sponsor of OK Computer. And they also sponsor guy our Monday edition of Market Call. Tremendous. You and I do live on XMSR, Business Channel 132. That, that's been a lot of fun. By the way, and again, I'm probably teasing something, but Danny Moses will sit in at some point. July 10. Summer. July 10. Danny's yes, going to be 10. in the studio XMSR here. So crazy. check out our show on noon on XM132. That's going to be a serious XM with Guy and myself this Monday. We also have a special pod drop of On the Tape with Z, CEO, co-founder of Roe, and myself. Stick around, people. We got Michael Cantro when we come back. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry iConnections membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. 
iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Welcome back to On the Tape. We are here with Michael Kantrowitz, Chief Investment Strategist at Piper Sandler. Michael, you were on in October of 2022, so the fall of last year. And I got to start with this. Hope is a dangerous thing. And, you know, we know where we're going with this, Michael, with your hope trade. You and I converse from time to time on Twitter. I read your stuff all the time. Certainly, I share in a lot of your sentiment, and you bring great data, and you really do the work behind everything that you do. So no one can say that you're just throwing things out there, because I think you have the data to support it. So welcome back, and let's start. Lead us in here, my man. Yeah, lots changed since October. Certainly, we've, if anything, we've gone from one extreme of sentiment to, I would say, the opposite extreme in sentiment. At the lows in October, people were really worried about a lot of different things, not just domestically, but globally with China shut down, Europe having a potential frozen winter and the Fed raising rates and putting the economy into recession much earlier. I think those risks have massively been alleviated since October. We even got to a point in January where the no landing concept came back out. First time I've ever heard no landing or read no landing actually was August 11th of 2000. Larry Kudlow was quoted in a Wall Street Journal article talking about how great the economy was and how this technologically innovative economy is not going to slow down, is not going to even land. Most stocks, actually, if we look back this year, just looking at the S&P 500, most stocks year-to-date high was on February 2nd. 184 stocks in the S&P 500 are above their February 2nd levels as of today. Why does that date matter? That was, in my opinion, a blow-up top in, in breadth coming on the back of a Fed pivot rally that started in October that ended with a, a no landing sentiment from investors. And so that's where you had the most number of stocks at their year-to-date highs. Since then, yes, the indices have gone up quite a bit, but as we all know, it's been far more bifurcated, far more narrow. And I think what people are trying to figure out today is if this new bull market, if we want to call it that, is indeed a broad-based bull market or will become one. Uh, and uh, obviously we have some strong opinions there. So we often cite February 2nd, the first chase at the beginning of the year, people came in kind of net short, found themselves underweight, tech, overweight, energy and financials. And throughout the month of January, pivoted and started to chase, kind of got slapped in the face a little bit in February and this rally resumed here. But I opened with kind of the hope is a dangerous thing because hope you do follow four key categories, the housing, the orders, profit and employment. And obviously the charts are all over the place. They're all have their own kind of story unto themselves. Can you just walk through those four things? Because I don't think it's really giving me, maybe it's giving you a clear sign of anything. This is unlike anything we've seen as far as if you want to call it a, some type of recovery or stagnation, whatever it might be. I'd love to get your thoughts there. And we can translate that into what we're seeing in the marketplace with regards to what has worked and what hasn't worked this year. So HOPE, again, stands for, it's an acronym. It's a simplification of the sequence in the business cycle of how changes in interest rates translate into better or worse economic activity, starting with housing is the H, O is PMIs or orders. The P is profit growth and the E is employment. And 
we are at a stage in the cycle. Uh, and when you go throughout history, there's been eight recessions since 1960. So not a ton to pull from. And each one had its own unique idiosyncrasies around the problems in the economy, the secular backdrops being different. And this one, in this backdrop, that's the similarity that people are arguing is different this time. This time we won't go into recession because of X, Y, and Z. And there's always a view on that, that changes in each cycle. So what have we seen since October? PMIs have gotten even worse. The ISM manufacturing index new orders is sitting at about 42 and change. We've seen a bunch of the regional PMIs. Kansas City Fed got real, real ugly. Empire of Philly Fed. So to your point, Danny, there's a lot of different data sets and you could cherry pick one or two of them to come up with your own narrative. Profit growth has been better than expected in larger caps and I think been worse than expected in smaller caps, which is behind some of the leadership this year in large caps. And then employment, we'll get to housing, of course, but employment uh, is now on people's radar. It was not on the radar, I would argue, back in October of last year. I don't think employment was at all an issue for the economy in 2022 or profits. Whereas now the increase in claims we've started to see in the last two months is slowly working its way up the concern list of investors. It is by far from atop that list, but it is certainly creeping up. My conversations with clients tend to start off with employment today, whereas six months ago it was all inflation in the Fed. The period where we are now and you know what I have to recognize, and it could be different this time, and there are many differences this time, the secular backdrop for housing is different. But when you look at the housing data, we've seen some improvement in the NHB index. Builder sentiment has bounced a bunch. It also collapsed last year. And I think that's the simplification of the macro in the market in the last 18 months. What got hit the most last year has bounced the most this year. And I think that simplifies to that everything that got hit the most last year was due to rates. And we've had a rate relief rally in the last seven or eight months. And so housing has bounced. Obviously, with this massive historic bifurcation between new and existing home sales, a lot of people are looking at the new housing data, the building starts, housing starts, and saying, look, housing is bottomed, a new recovery has begun, and how housing is different this time, and obviously people are locked in their homes, so you're not seeing many existing home sales. And one thing is that when the Fed's about done, or when the market thinks the Fed's done, but before employment claims start to really rise, Historically, you always see a bounce in the housing data. So in that context, this bounce is quite normal. How long that lasts across different cycles is, again, very variable. In 2000, housing barely weakened. Obviously, in 07 and 08, it collapsed. In 1990, it got hit for a couple quarters. And so there's no necessarily rhyme or reason for how many months housing can stabilize or improve from a tightening cycle that kind of got dented it quite a bit. One of the things I'm thinking about is obviously I see the housing data improving and that's usually a really important part of our process because that tends to be the beginning of a recovery. But I'm wondering if this dynamic today with existing home sales being massively under pressure and new home sales having to fill that gap and the mix shift of really what creates the multiplier effect in our economy. Is it new home sales or is it sales from existing home sales? Or if we think about the stock level, obviously Lennar is going to benefit massively from this. I'm not so sure Home Depot really is a winner in this backdrop. To me, they get more benefit from existing home sales. And actually, if you look at a ratio of new to existing home sales and Lennar, for example, or Toll Brothers or any builder relative to Home Depot or Lowe's, it's the same chart. 
And so ultimately it goes to the question of, is this housing rebound we've seen more than just the end of a tightening cycle? And if it is, will it have the same multiplier effect that we have seen in past cycles when housing rebounds as a function of more demand and lower interest rates, which helps the entire economy, whereas this is more of a supply issue? I'm speaking out loud here and just talking to you with, with what I'm thinking about now. Are we over-extrapolating this rebound in housing? Not that it's not real, but can we just regress it with all other data sets we know that historically improve with housing? but really aren't as of today. That's interesting. And that's a great example, the Lennar versus Home Depot and the multiplier effect. Home Depot is 25% off of its all-time highs made in late 2021, when I think the story, the narrative in and around housing was very different. And now that shifted, it has to do with rates, it has to do with supply demand, it has to do with a whole host of other demographic sort of switches. And Lennar is just basically trading near all-time highs. But I want to go from the H, the housing to the P, that would be profits. And we track John Butters. He's the senior earnings insight analyst over there at FactSet, some of the data that he has about the here and now, right? So he's tracking the earnings estimate, the aggregate cuts over the course of Q2. And this quarter, they came in about 2.7%. That's below the 5, 10, 15, and 20-year averages. And it's interesting, when he was tracking that data in the prior few quarters or so, those earnings estimate cuts over the course of the quarter were coming in above those averages over those time periods. And so when you think about that, are we setting up, Kentra, do you think, are we getting a little bit off sides? But the only issue that I have with this data is that when he drills down on the sector level, you're seeing earnings revisions higher for information services. And we know that those are the big platform companies and those are the big companies that, at least in the stock market, have enjoyed a lot of the positive sentiment in and around AI. So speak to that a little bit, because that's one thing I think that is putting some sort of, uh, when we think about retesting the October lows in the S&P 500, we'd be happy just to get unchanged if you thought some of the positive sentiment had to come out, because 3,600 seems like a ways away from 4,400 right now. Absolutely. One thing to think about, and again, things can play out, take longer to play out. They could take shorter periods to play out. Again, one of the historical echoes is that if we look back at past beginnings to bear markets that were results of rising unemployment, most of them started at all-time highs in the S&P. Like October 07, we were at all-time highs. October of 2000, after the massive pivot rally in the summer of 2000, we went back to all-time highs on the S&P. In, in 1990, we started off that bear market from all-time highs. So it's not uncommon for, again, sentiment to go from, oh no, the Fed's raising rates and things are going to get bad to flipping 180 degrees back to a really euphoric sentiment. If anything, that is very normal. So with regards to earnings, just to reset the kind of refresh of where we were at the beginning of the year, yes, we have a year-end call that the market's going to go down sharply in the second half. Our view in the first half, however, was unlike some of the other, quote, bears, I know you guys are friends with and chat with many of them, was that the equity market was not going to go down the first half. We didn't see that as a likely event. In fact, our view is that if we started to see claims go up in the first half, that would be a very bullish event for equity markets because it would take all the heat from more rate hikes out of the equation. And mind you, the banking crisis in March did a lot of that work already. And the last few weeks when we've seen claims go up, you've seen the NASDAQ up a percent each of the last three weeks, not today. In the first half, 
that was kind of our market view. And we recommended being in high quality growth stocks. And the reason was very simple. We thought we were going to see earnings continue to slow, still view that as the outlook, and that we would get to a point where the market would say, okay, the Fed's done and get that classic relief rally you always see at the end of a tightening cycle. And that it would likely be money moving into companies that have growth. That's something we didn't see last year at all because earnings growth was pretty strong on a broad basis. When we look at the stocks this year that have seen the best appreciation and price, it's come not just from PE expansion, but from a combination of earnings revisions, positive earnings revisions, and PE expansion. If anything, investors are doubling up. Any company that has better relative earnings is also seeing, in most cases, relative PE expansion as well. So when we think about the next couple quarters, we view what we do in, in, in two separate frameworks. Because the market view, which market calls are binary events. They are events. Generally, what we're focused on for our clients is positioning because that is a process that is highly consistent around profit growth cycles, PMI cycles, employment cycles. In the last six months, profit growth has slowed. Leadership has been massively large cap growth and skewed like we haven't seen in many years. And that all makes sense. And it got exacerbated by AI. It got exacerbated by the, the banking crisis. But I think this backdrop of slowing earnings growth is going to persist. Why don't we want to jump into small caps right now? Why have small caps been sitting sideways for more or less the last year, even since October? It's not like small, the Russell 2000 is that much off its lows. And I think the simple answer is that you've already seen 30 something percent PE expansion in the small cap index. But at the same time, since October, earnings estimates are down 19% on a forward basis. That is simply why small caps are lagging because P expansion can only carry something so far. If there's no earnings behind it, that's going to improve immediately. And there, it gets to a point where P's can't continue to expand. So we're recommending you stay with these growth stocks. You stay with companies that have better earnings revisions, that have better visibility, better balance sheets that are less cyclical. We don't see a real strong catalyst for any sustained improvement in breadth and in cyclical leadership and in small cap leadership or value leadership, because what is required to get a sustainable move is a cyclical, broad-based recovery in the macro data. Broad market recoveries require broad macro recoveries. And that is just not in the cards in 2023. So on that note, you said you came into the year not bearish. You weren't overly bullish, but you certainly said to no, own, definitely. Own, own some type of quality. I don't know if you were, I don't think you were overly bullish coming into the beginning of the year. No, 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 okay. absolutely not. We were calling for a range bound so, market. So I'd say what the equal weighted index has done was our call, which is was up 3%, 4% year to date. We favored or recommended positioning within growth stocks. So we were on the right side of leadership but did I expect the NASDAQ to jump up 38% or wherever it is? No, what I was going to say was, what I was going to say, Cantor, was if I had given you the levels, we were sitting here today and I said, yeah. okay, the S&P's at 4,400, whatever, give you the NASDAQ levels. You could say, all right, that's interesting. Let me go back and tell you what the breadth looked like. And I think you just went through that, that it's not healthy. That it's not what you would think it would be. If you had to fill those blanks in, it probably wouldn't be seven stocks comprising the majority of all gains. And flip that also is that I think from a, weirdly, no one had the Fed going, I think, this much more. Certainly, people that were bearish believed the Fed was probably almost done. They weren't bearish because they thought the Fed was going to drive us further, potentially, into yeah. slowness. And even the, I think the people were bullish because the Fed was going to stop. So here we are, the Fed keeps going. And I'll throw in what you mentioned, which was no way to handicap and no one 
really had this event on their bingo card was this banking crisis, which came went and then brought in more liquidity into the system and on the balance sheet, yep. right? So again, all these things we can look back and piece it together. And I think you just touched on it, but I think it's key to go back to is it just the market breadth and the sustainability or the ability of these kind of horsemen to sustain this market higher without the rest of the participation coming into play here? And I think that to me is, I think what you're saying is going to be the theme in the back half of the year. The debate of whether the housing data we've seen improving is a bounce and i.e. is it sustainable? And ultimately what you need to see is PMIs and is to cyclically pick up. And now there's never been a recovery in PMIs this goes back to the 50s, without Fed easing. Never happened. Not saying it can't happen because anything's possible. Yeah, I've certainly learned that throughout my career, but the odds of it happening are quite low. And so this idea that we're in a new bull market, I think one, it's important to recognize where are we coming from? Rarely, and so talk about things that have never happened, find me a Fed tightening cycle where the NASDAQ's down 35% in 10 months without employment deteriorating. You can't. It's never happened. We've never had such an inflation shock at the time where we just came off a pandemic bubble, the perfect storm in, 20, in the beginning of 2022 regarding inflation. And I think that we could be resetting ourselves up for a similar behavioral bias that people believe employment is just not going to weaken because that also hasn't happened. If you take aside COVID, we haven't had an employment downturn in 16 years, starting since 07. So there's a lot of similar to the view that inflation and interest rates could never go up which was the view of the market on Jan 1, 2022, that obviously changed. I think we have a similar uh, backdrop on employment today because of that muscle memory or lack of muscle memory. How do you factor in Europe? Obviously pretty slow here, Germany in a recession, China can't get the ball rolling there. How does that factor into kind of your mindset or your thoughts in terms of strategy? The ECB is still tightening. Broader Europe is somewhat behind the curve in terms of the tightening cycle relative to the U.S., Germany, yeah, Germany's in a recession and you think recession, but you look at the stock market and you're like, that doesn't really look like a stock market that's in a, in a recession. And this goes back to employment in Europe or even in Germany, you've had some negative data, but employment has yet to really sharply roll over. And recession in my book and really in the market's book, not so much about GDP, but it's about employment because that's what really creates systemic problems. That's when people default and it creates that negative feedback loop. Forward indicators of Europe's trajectory from here, like the Eurozone PMI or the IFO or the zoo indices, leading indicators of those indices suggest there's another six to nine months of downside in those data. So just like the US, which we see a similar outlook, I think, again, we're slowly moving into this downturn. Talk about not seeing layoffs in the U.S. In Europe, obviously, it's much less common for companies to do layoffs, especially in countries like France. And so same story, though, that where is the cyclical recovery going to come from? Where's the easing going to come from? We've already had 12 months now of lower oil, lower gasoline prices, lower natural gas prices. And we have to factor that in. That's been a huge stimulus in the face of higher rates, which has kept the U.S. economy and the global economy, especially Europe, much healthier, all else equal. We're not going to get another 30, 40% drop in energy prices without economic pain, in my opinion. And that's helped certainly Europe and definitely the U.S. consumer in the last 12 months. It's not another round of SPRs to be released. China's a hot mess. I think, again, a lot of people were real bullish on their reopening and that kind of fizzled out pretty quickly. We think China's one of the countries in more of a secular stagnation from their massive investment boom starting in 2000. And they're going to continue to be much more intentional with their stimulus policy as opposed to seeing 
broad-based stimulus like we did in the U.S. or even in past periods when China was slow. So we kind of see China being more of a kind of not a problem, but not a solution in the grand scheme of things. So Cantor, bringing it back to the stock market here, because Danny laid out the sentiment in January after what was a pretty dismal year for stocks and investors. And basically everywhere you looked, the China pivot from zero COVID certainly got things going in January. And when I think about the S&P 500, now here we are six months later, we are 25% off of those October lows. We're 15% off of the March lows when really a whole heck of a lot of uncertainty about what was going on in the regional banking sector and the potential for it to spill over and what that meant for economic growth and the like here. Think about where we are. And I think about your call in high growth, even though they were high valuation, these kind of what you would say, like defensible moats in the large mega cap tech space. What could lead to the downside? If you're still saying stick with those names because they're going to act well on a relative basis, and if we do have some sort of economic shock that causes stocks to turn lower a little bit, what's going to lead? Because we already have the lag of small caps. We have the lag of energy, right? We're seeing materials in some of those names. They're, they're like Those are like the real economy stocks. Financials yep. have underperformed today. We're recording this Thursday afternoon with the 10-year yield is up 14, 15 basis points. We're seeing many of the money center banks screaming right now a little bit higher after the stress test two in a way. So I'm just curious what you would kind of suggest to investors to keep an eye on for the downside if it's not going to be these large platform companies. Because to me, I don't know how we test 4,000 and then let's say 3,600 again, if it's not going to be Apple, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, NVIDIA, Tesla leading to the downside. Because those seven stocks, I'm, I might be missing one, are $10 trillion in market cap. And they are basically all of the S&P 500's gains. If you think about it, they got massively hit. S&P was down 25% at its low last year. And what's this year? It's more or less the opposite of yeah. last year. And again, I think the way I look at it is that last year, and I'm sure this is a debatable topic, that people thought the market was down because we were pricing in a recession. And I think it's just a wrong take on what happened last year. And that really there's little evidence of that's really what was driving the market to the downside. If anything, large cap pure value stocks at their worst. So the most cyclical part of the S&P 500 was only down 13% in October, while the NASDAQ at that same point in time was down 35. So we've now seen this massive PE expansion across the board. And even you mentioned small caps, Dan, they've seen 33%. The Russell 2000 has seen its PE increase by 33% since October. That can go right backwards. Mm -hmm. Uh, particularly if earnings fall sharply. And so the answer to your question is, what's the macro catalyst? It's always employment. It's always employment. If you really want to think about what's a bear market, it's really, it's when employment deteriorates, the you know, claims are rising, the unemployment rate's rising, credit spreads are rising, the yield curve's steepening because we're pricing in cuts or more cuts. That to me is a real bear market because that can't get turned around by a policy cut or really anything. And the only time historically the economy's ever turned around on a dime is during the pandemic with all that stimulus, which is not going to happen again. So the answer is, can those stocks go down? Apple, you know, all, all NVIDIA, et cetera. Absolutely. They can fall 20, 30%. Uh, I know it's, it doesn't seem like that's likelihood because look, they're going up so much. We're all victims of recency bias. But if we get a proper recession, with 
unemployment rising and claims getting to 300,000, 325,000, we think by late this year, we're going to see credit issues and we're going to see even those names fall. I think though that you still want to remain as, again, our clients are positioning within the market and have to remain invested somewhere. Defense has been left for dead. So that'll likely relatively hold up better if claims do follow the path we expect and the leading indicators suggest. Smaller caps, cyclicals uh, are going to get hit harder than even, can NVIDIA fall 30%? Absolutely. Is it going to fall 80%? Like Amazon was trading at a 40 times sales multiple in 2000. It fell 80, 90%, but it was an immature company back then. NVIDIA is far more profitable, far more mature. And so Again, I think the market call becomes very binary and it's not a great way to think about how to invest from here. Where we have conviction and where we have visibility is that the likelihood of a cyclical upturn oddly, is extremely low today for all the right reasons that have historically shaped the business cycle. The best case scenario for stocks is that we just grind out this slowdown and allow inflation to come down without really claims moving up a lot, which is the bullish story. But that, to me, continues to propel growthier, profitable, healthier companies to continue to outperform. I don't think people are buying banks, auto companies, and other cyclical areas of the market, energy, without the data broadly improving. And we're not seeing that. They're buying one auto company. I just want to make one point that you just made that a lot of those growth companies are not the growth companies of 99 and 2000 that when the NASDAQ lost 80 some percent. I think it's really important for people to remember that the backdrop, okay, from the highs in 2021 to where we are right now is not that different, okay? A year and a half, two years later, and three companies that people loved then lost 75% of their value. And you know what they are? They were Tesla, they were NVIDIA, and they were Facebook, Meta. And so to think that couldn't happen again if the NASDAQ were to come in 35%, is I think a big misnomer because it just happened. You know what I mean? And you could say that those moats are stronger and maybe the economy is now going to be changing because of this newfound euphoric AI thing. AI was around then, and these companies were spending hundreds of millions or billions of dollars then, okay? But what they didn't have is a commercialized product like chat GPT that a lot of other companies now have been chasing. So I just think that, again, the narrative is clearly shifted, but don't be mistaken. These companies can get cut in half, or at least the stocks can, again, with not too much change, I think, in the environment, like a recession that would lead to a, let's say, a protracted bear market again. And I think all of those stocks would be cut in half and maybe then some. Yeah. And that goes back to the point we go from October and we look at the S&P and we disaggregate the gain in the S&P or the NASDAQ since October, it's all been multiple expansion. And the NASDAQ has had a little bit of earnings growth, which again, is a few companies. But if you look at the S&P 500, earnings on a forward 12-month basis are exactly where they were on, in October of 2022 today. The entire move in the S&P has been PE expansion. Now, PE expansion and PE compression are, create very volatile markets and can change very quickly. Just like we saw from PEs collapse to the first 10 months of last year, MPEs have shot up in the last eight months since October. That is going back to hope is a dangerous thing. PE expansion is hope. PE compression is fear. It's fundamentals that stabilize the market and stabilize the economy or earnings. And we're not seeing that broad-based pickup. And one of the things I want to make sure I get in before our time is up is not only is this, again, following a lot of the behavioral patterns, and there's a lot of rhymes of today's backdrop to past 
periods where the Fed was about done, but employment hadn't really rolled over. The last time we saw the NASDAQ outperform the S&P by this much, or even the equal weighted index before this was in 07. And we saw the same thing in 2000, in the summer of 2000. What's in common with today in those two periods where they were both at the end of a Fed tightening cycle. And so yeah, the more historical digging I do, it only keeps bringing me back to the same conclusion. Again, maybe it's different this time, but that is always the most bullish sentiment in this backdrop, that it is different this time. It's just always something different. Today, it's AI. It was .com in 2000. Energy was in a bubble in 07 and 08. That was different this time. And historically, it never really is, but maybe this time will be different. We have to entertain that. But the one thing that, that I keep going back to that is screaming in our framework that this is not the beginning of a broad-based recovery in equities or the economy is our sell model. And this goes back to, you, Dan, you were mentioning about 2000, the unique part of what the leadership is today in the equity market, it's quality, it's profitability, it's companies with great balance sheets and income. The tech bubble from 99 to 2000 was all companies that had no earnings. That is, it couldn't be more different today, at least thus far. In fact, negative earning tech companies are massively underperforming those that have profitability. And so the thing that's screaming out in our framework is our sell model. We've been running a sell model for just over a decade, and we have it back-tested back to the mid-80s. And it's a handful of fundamental attributes that you really don't want to own companies with these types of red flag attributes, whether it's accounting anomalies, you're looking for poor quality of reporting, really high valuation, companies that are you know, selling more equity, their days depreciation is changing, you know, they're fudging their numbers or have evidence of that. That's our sell model. The only time the sell model gets, blows up in your face, we'll use that, is at the beginning of an economic recovery. And we saw it in March of 2020 for about 12 months. We saw it in March of 09 for about 12 months. We saw it in March of 03 for 12 months. We saw it in 2016 for about 12 months where low quality stocks, or sometimes people call them junk stocks, rip and they maintain leadership. And that is glaringly missing in this quote, new bull market. Our short model is sitting on its bottom literally today. At its low, going back 25 years or as far back 30 years, we have it back tested. That is not the sign of a new bull market or certainly a healthy market. If this was really a new bull market that was broadly driven, you'd see low quality stocks ripping sustainably and we're not. And so that just continues to point us back in the direction of this looks a lot more like a pivot rally. Fed's done and the economy's going to bottom and we're going to have a soft landing. That's the narrative that we're in today. It does not look like the beginning of a new sustainable bull market. And I think everyone knows that and people are debating whether or not that can happen, but we don't think it's likely. Yeah, that's why I track the meme stocks, not because I'm going to trade them, because I want to look and see what's in your face and what the health of the retail investor is. And before we get out of here, I want to ask you one question. Do you get paid some type of royalty? Anyone says hashtag hope. That was the first thing I was going to ask you. <laughs> But, I think, think Lynch beat me to that. Exactly. That's true. That's true. But the second thing was, just as we look to your point, I think you're spot on kind of about jobs leading everything, right? I can look at this market right now or look at what's going on within the economy and everything. And the S&P could be at 3,500. We could be having all the same arguments that are going on with the S&P at 4,400. Whether you believe it's a trough, whether it's the peak in earnings, whatever it might be, right? You could paint. Behind the scenes, bankruptcies are on a pace that we haven't seen in years, not public companies necessarily, but private companies. Probably can no longer access credit. That has a self-fulfilling impact, an actual impact, obviously, on employment and things. And so I guess my last question to you is, we're going to get through a period of time here. 
where employment, unemployment's going to rise. It has to. It has one direction to go, right? We see the trends are in place. And the hope will be that the Fed's done. And you made the point, and just bring it back together for me as we get out of here, that handoff of, okay, but now the Fed's done, they're going to cut. It's not going to matter. Because I think I want to hammer home the point that you just made about the momentum going the other way in the markets on this economic data. It just doesn't turn like that. So I guess what I'm asking is, is there a level of continuing or weekly jobless claims where you get to a point where like, now you're now there's no going back. We are about to see some type. So lead us out with that, even though I don't hate leading us out with negative things, just lead us out with how to help investors yeah. navigate that last piece. Sure. And by the way, you'll be five bucks. You, you just said hope. So that's starts, that starts now. That was for religious reasons, hoping the market goes down. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Listen, nobody more than me is exhausted by this kind of this long process playing out and wants to be more bullish and broadly bullish on the market. And again, every time I try to see the scenarios that would lead to broad participation, it really is hard to get to that conclusion with conviction and remaining true to our framework and our values. Here's the tricky thing about this cycle specifically. A couple things. Number one, I'm sure you guys have heard it a million times. It's taking so long for employment to soften. People are so shocked that it's not worse by now. I've literally yet to see anyone actually quantify that. In other words, like it feels like employment's taking a long time to, t to turn over because maybe it feels like that because the market was down last year. Maybe it feels like that because of the Fed was raising rates quickly and we should just assume that a rapid tightening cycle should lead to a rapid employment contraction. So that's, I'm sure you guys have heard that a lot. We looked at a way to quantify that and ask ourselves, is employment really taking a long time to slow? And we did it in a number of ways. The simplest way to do it is say, let's look at a yield curve and say, when that inverts, let's start the clock. And we look at the 10 year, three month yield curve. And we look at the last eight recessions. Claims are exactly on track of where they quote should be or are on average. Again, only eight examples. When you look at that, when we look at the lag effect of housing data that turned down last year, which leads claims by about a year and a quarter, that's on track. So this the narrative or view that everything's taking a long time to turn down, when you look at the data, it doesn't really, that, that, that doesn't seem true. People uh, using the stock market as their data, that's it. Yeah, but, but to yeah. your point, and you started this off by saying it, it's exhausting. What's exhausting is what the stock market is doing in face of the data. We get all that. And again, we all want to be a bit more constructive on things. But if you're just focused on the lagging indicators rather than the stuff that you are basically keeping you true to yeah. that framework, the leading stuff is not giving you more confidence about that. And that's the problem if you're a pundit and you have podcasts or you're talking on TV all the time or you are talking to your clients, it does get a little exhausting playing that waiting game. Listen, Michael Kantrowitz, we really appreciate you coming back. We hope that you will come back again in the not so distant future. So thanks a lot for joining us. Michael, thanks. All right. Thanks, guys. If I could just leave you with, you know, if I knew the magic level, you know, will claim continue to rise? That's question number one. And question number two, Danny, to your question is at what point Will investors react negatively to that and stop seeing rising claims or bad macro data as good news that removes CPI and the Fed off our back to bad news that create credit issues? I think that's going to be the debate going forward. And so we'll look forward to speaking with you guys again soon. Thanks, man. Great. Appreciate Thanks, Cantro. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. 
If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.